Author Lois Kruger tells a story about her four-year-old son, Justin, wanting to run away from home one day. And it was one of those hectic, going in a hundred different directions kind of days, and Justin just kept getting into the middle of mischief. I know there are no parents here who can relate to those kinds of days, right? And he just kept repeatedly hearing from his parents, Justin, stop it. Justin, put that down. Justin, don't do that. And finally, his dad just picked him up and just sat him in a corner. And it was at that point that Justin said, I want to run away from home. And that pronouncement reminded Lois of a time when she was a kid and she said the same thing. And she started to remember those distant feelings, those memories of feeling unloved, unwanted, overlooked. And she knew that what Justin was really saying was, someone please notice me. I'm important too. Pay attention to me. And so she said, okay, Justin, you can run away from home. And then she went to her closet and she started picking out clothes. Mama, he said, what are you doing? She said, well, we're going to need my nightgown and we're going to need my overcoat. And she started packing her items into a bag and put them by the front door. And she said, okay, Justin, are you sure you want, away, you want to run away from home? And he said, yeah, but what are you doing? And she said, well, if you're going to run away from home... The mama's going to go with you because I would never want you to be alone. I love you too much, Justin. In a similar way, just as Lois watched her son decide to run away from home, God watched his prophet decide that he wanted to flee from God's presence. And God loved Jonah far more than Lois loved Justin. And so God went with Jonah because he wanted to show Jonah just how far-reaching his love was. That his love could reach all the way to Nineveh. His love could reach to the depths of the raging sea. Last week we looked at Jonah's rebellion against God's word and God's will and how God used a storm to get Jonah's attention. But rather than repent of that when the storm came, Jonah instead told the desperate sailors just to throw him into the sea to, to appease God and stop the storm and save themselves. And if you remember from last week, from chapter 1 of Jonah, the sailors reluctantly obeyed after they did everything in their power to try to row back to shore, all futile effort. And ironically, while, while Jonah failed to pray, the pagans prayed. While Jonah would rather die than obey God, the sailors repented of their idolatry and came to saving faith in God. And when we left the story, God in His grace and compassion provided a big fish to rescue Jonah from the raging waters. And we saw that at the very end of chapter 1. If you want to turn in your Bibles there to Jonah, we're going to look at chapter 2 in a minute, but chapter 1 ends, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Timothy Keller writes and describes that fish as an example of what he calls God's severe mercy. It's a mercy because God saved Jonah's life. It's severe because it's a fish. <laughs> it's a stinky, watery, dark prison. I mean, it's like God put Jonah in the worst kind of timeout you could ever put somebody. And Jonah chapter 2 recounts what happened during that three-day, three-night timeout. Jonah had a three-day prayer meeting with God. And you may be surprised in chapter 2 to read that Jonah offered a prayer 
of thanksgiving. Not complaining, not cursing the Assyrians or the sailors, but a humble, submissive, grateful, dependent prayer on the very God that Jonah had been fleeing. You know, one of our church's core values is prayerful dependence. We believe it's very important for us as a church, as Christians, to be prayerfully dependent on God. And that really is Jonah's attitude here. While he's drowning in the sea, while he's doing some thinking in the belly of that fish. And so as we look at Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, we can discover some important aspects of prayerful dependence that can greatly affect our lives with God. The first thing we learn about prayerful dependence is that it asks for God's help. Prayerful dependence asks for God's help. We see that in verses 1 and 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Jonah went from fleeing God's presence to seeking God in prayer. He went from turning his back on God to lifting up his eyes toward the temple, the place of prayer, worship, and salvation for the Jewish people. What brought this change in Jonah? What motivated this repentance and prayer? I think it's a combination of two things. It's God's goodness and Jonah's distress. He prays motivated by equal parts affection and affliction. And that's often true for all of us. You know, some people try to win people to God only by preaching God's goodness and His love for everyone. Other people prefer to try to scare people into heaven by preaching only fire and brimstone and God's wrath against sin. But the truth is, God is both wrathful toward sin and loving toward people. And we often need to see both aspects of God's character for us to be motivated to seek Him. Jonah prays about his distress. In the depths of the grave, the Hebrew word there that the NIV translates here, grave, it's the Hebrew word sheol. Maybe some of your Bibles say sheol, or maybe it's in a footnote there. And sheol was the ancient Jewish people sort of incomplete not fully formed idea about what happens to people after they die. It really isn't hell, but it isn't heaven either. It's sort of this idea of like this shadowy realm of the dead, a place from which there is no deliverance unless God intervenes. It isn't until much later that the, the, the Jewish people begin to understand more fully the concept of hell and the concept of heaven. Of course, Jesus preaches about hell uh, just about as much as any topic he preaches about. But at this point in the Jewish mind, they, they understood it as this, this realm of the dead. We see this in Psalm 49:15. It's mentioned throughout the Psalms in particular, when the psalmist says, "But God will redeem me from Sheol, from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself." Now Jonah was a student of the Hebrew Scriptures. As flawed as he was, he was a Bible scholar, and he especially drew from the Psalms throughout this prayer. And like Jonah, the psalmist had cried out in faith to God to redeem him from Sheol, to bring him alive to himself. This prayer 
from a place of distress reminds me again of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. We, we compared that there on the first Sunday of the month, how much Jonah parallels the story of the prodigal son. And if you remember in that story, the prodigal son had, had asked for his father's and his half of the inheritance from his dad, and he basically said to his dad, you're dead to me, and he left. And he went off and he kind of lived wildly, and he spent all of his money, and his friends abandoned him once he had no money to spend on them, and he ends up literally living and working in a pigsty. He is slopping pigs. He has scraped the bottom of a barrel as far as a Jewish boy was concerned. Things really couldn't get any worse. And that's part of what drove his repentance. That he had reached the bottom. There was nowhere to go from there but up. And so he desired to return home to his father. But do you know what else drives us home to our father? It's not just our distress. It's his goodness. It's God's goodness. Because the prodigal son not only was looking at the pigsty he was in, but he started to think about how good he had it at home. He started to think about how justly his father treated the servants. And he decided that living at home as a hired hand would be better than this. For Jonah, he remembered the temple. He remembered that God is a God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who relents from sending calamity. He remembered that God hears the prayers of His people. And so for both prodigals, the prodigal son and the prodigal prophet, they experienced a change of heart when they came to terms with their distress and then remembered their father's goodness. The son implored his father and Jonah implored the Lord to forgive and rescue him. And so God appointed a great fish. You know, it may have been a whale, we don't know. Uh, If you read, when Jesus refers to this story in the New Testament... Uh, The Greek word he uses is often translated sea monster. Okay, so it's the idea of some big creature in the sea that swallows Jonah. Now, we know here with our science in the 21st century that a whale is a mammal. But to the ancient mind, it, it lives in the water. It's a fish, right? So we don't know if it was a whale or just a great big largemouth bass. We don't know what it was. It was something, right? And God appointed it, God sent it to rescue Jonah from his watery grave. And so that means that the fish wasn't a punishment, was it? No, the fish wasn't a punishment. The fish was a means of rescue. It was God's vessel of salvation for Jonah, like a lifeboat. And it safely escorted him out of the depths, away from Sheol. It was a safe haven from which he could offer prayers of thanksgiving. But while he was sinking into the sea, Jonah understood that his situation was hopeless unless God acted to save him and give him a second chance. Our God is a God who hears the prayers of His people when we earnestly seek Him with all our heart. Jeremiah 29.13 reinforces this. When God was speaking to the Jews who were exiled in Babylon because of their idolatry and rebellious hearts, He said, if you seek Me, you will find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. And Jonah reassures us that no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, God can and does hear your prayers. 
And when He does hear your prayers, and when He answers you, we should follow Jonah's example and offer God prayers of thanksgiving and praise. So that's the first thing prayerful dependence does. It asks for God's help. But the second thing it does is it accepts God's discipline. It accepts God's discipline. Let's look at verses 3 and the first part of verse 4. Jonah goes on to pray, You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. In chapter 1, God hurled a storm at Jonah. In chapter 2, God hurls Jonah into the sea. God's doing a lot of throwing things around in this story, isn't He? And that's why Jonah had to ask for God's help. Because it was God's judgment who put him there. God was the only one who could save him out of it. Because nobody can rescue you from the wrath of God except for God Himself. Amen? No one can rescue you from God's judgment and punishment but God Himself. So Jonah began to descend. Now Jonah began his descent... And Matt mentioned this earlier. There's a lot of going down in this story. His descent into disobedience started when he went down to Joppa. And then he went down to the boat. And then he went down into the belly of the boat. And now he's sinking down into the very heart of the sea. Whenever we choose to run away from God, we begin a downward journey. And Jonah's sin took him down further than he wanted to go, almost to death's door. See, God had to do that. God had to take Jonah all the way down and strip him of his own buoyant self-sufficiency. Why? Because we are stubborn. And we are self-deluded into thinking that we can save ourselves. Unless we hit rock bottom, we tend to think, I've got this. What storm? I can handle a little bit of rain. I can handle a little bit of wind. I can handle whatever life throws my way. And that's why so many of the great lessons of life we have to learn through the school of hard knocks. Because we can be hard-headed. Amen? We can be stubborn. The message paraphrase explains this when it translates the first of Jesus' Beatitudes this way. It says, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and His rule. Love that. See, Jonah had to come to the end of himself before he would embrace the mercy and grace of God and seek His help. And we're we're the same way. We have to come to the end of our ropes before we will let go and release the hurt and the pain and the pride and grab a hold of God's grace and strength. We see this throughout the Bible. Jacob was estranged from his family and wrestled all night with God before he became the leader of the people that would become Israel. Joseph had to endure years of slavery in prison before he could be second in command of Egypt. The people of Israel were enslaved for 400 years and wandered in the wilderness 40 years before they could take the promised land and be that people of the promise. David committed adultery and suffered the devastating loss of his children. Peter betrayed Jesus three times. 
It's only when we reach rock bottom and everything comes crashing down and we're broken and we're exhausted, that's when we finally open ourselves and completely trust and obey God. Jesus said that we can't follow Him unless we are willing to deny ourselves and take up our cross. He said that if we want to find our life, we have to lose our life. The way up is often first down. The question is, how will we respond to God's discipline when it comes? Will we stubbornly hold on to that falsehood that, you know, I'm basically a good person? And why is all this happening to me? Or will we, like Jonah, acknowledge that God's discipline is just and that we deserve it and then accept it? How we respond to God's discipline determines how much good that we'll receive from it. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this. It outlines our options when it comes to the Lord's discipline. Listen to this and read along on the screen. Hebrews 12, 5, And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as as sons and daughters. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when He rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those He loves. And He punishes everyone He accepts as a son or a daughter. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as His children. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons or daughters. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but it's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So we can take God's discipline lightly. We can despise it. We can be discouraged and faint under it. Verse 9 implies that we can resist the Father's discipline and that only invites even stronger discipline, possibly even death. Or we could submit to the Father's discipline in maturing faith and love and see it for what it is. Our Heavenly Father's severe mercy meant to chip away the vestiges of sin and reveal to us the love of God so that we can share in His holiness, so that we can bear the fruits of righteousness and peace. God's discipline for us should be like exercise and training for the athlete. I mean, Shelly, Julia, anybody who goes and works out with Mike, it's not always fun when you're down there lifting those weights, is it? Sometimes it hurts. It can be painful. But it's not meant to hurt us. It's meant to make us stronger. It's meant to make us better. And that is also true of the discipline of God. Once Jonah came to accept God's discipline, he could then turn to number three, and that's trust in God's promises. Trust in God's promises. Let's pick up the rest of verse four. 
he had said at the beginning, start at the beginning of verse 4, he said, I said I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. What a confession of faith. There at the last half of verse 4. What a confession of faith of God's mercy. Even before Jonah has any assurance that God is going to rescue him, he begins to praise God and dedicate himself to God. Now this part of Jonah's prayer draws heavily from the language that King Solomon used when he dedicated the temple in Jerusalem in 1 Kings. So listen and read along on the screen to parts of Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less the temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer. And his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day. This place of which you said, my name shall be there. So that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. And then in verse 46, he picks up and says, when they sin against you, because Solomon knew that the people of Israel were going to sin against God, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to his own land, far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their conquerors to show them mercy for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron smelting furnace. Jonah is claiming this promise that God always looks toward His temple and hears the supplication of His servant who prays towards it. Like Israel in exile in Babylon, Jonah is exiled in the depths of the sea. He's at the very gates of death. Yet his hope is that even there, even as he drowns in his own sinful rebellion, if he just turns back to the Lord God, who is rich in mercy, will hear from heaven and uphold his cause. He prays for God's forgiveness, for God to show him grace, to open his eyes to Jonah's plea and rescue him. Now, within the timeline of Jonah's prayer, because remember, Jonah's in the belly of the fish as he's praying, right? All of this prayer that we're reading is taking place in the fish. 
sometime during these three days and three nights. But what Jonah is praying about, he's, he, is, he is recounting his experience sinking down into the ocean. Does that make sense? So Jonah is talking to God in the fish, and he's talking about when he was drowning in the sea. So in that timeline of his prayer, as he's recounting and thanksgiving his distress and God's deliverance, it's not until verse 6 that the fish shows up. So these verses uh, 2 through the first part of verse 6 is when Jonah's sinking down in the water. Now, you know, all of these thoughts and all of this praying that he did in the ocean probably took place in a matter of minutes unless he had really great lung capacity, right? So it's probably just a, a few moments, all of this kind of, you know, like your life flashing before your eyes. All this happens in Jonah's heart and mind in a few moments. But I'm sure to Jonah, it felt like an eternity, right? And, and, and he thought that he was going to die. Death was certain. Jonah let God sink. I'm sorry, God let Jonah sink. I had to think about that. Remember. That didn't make any sense. God let Jonah sink. He let him struggle with his guilt. He let him panic that he was going to die. God had to let Jonah hit rock bottom. And just when he thought this was it, and there was no escape, God rescued him. Jonah really wasn't in that different of a position than every human being who's ever lived. Every person on earth is destined to an eternity in hell. We're all drowning in our sin without hope. And we can't swim our way out of it. We can't swim our way out of the depths of God's wrath. We must cry out to God for salvation and trust in His promise to save. And that's why even as Jonah is praying for deliverance, God has already appointed that means for salvation. Which tells us that Jonah isn't responsible for his rescue. God is. Jonah's not the author of his salvation. God is the author of his salvation because God, before Jonah ever prayed, back in chapter 1, verse 17, God had already appointed that fish to rescue him. Amen? Now, the key verse for Jonah is here in verse 7. When as his life was ebbing away, he says he remembered the Lord. He remembered the Lord and prayed for salvation. Again, this reminds me of the prodigal son. Because as the prodigal son is sitting in that pig pen, it says he came to to his senses. He came to himself. He came to realize and remember, why am I sitting here? I could be at my father's house. Things were so much better in my father's house. And he decides to get up and go home and ask for a job. That's the kind of realization and the change of heart that Jonah experiences. Even in his hopelessness, Jonah trusted that God would hear and answer his prayers. He remembered that God was the only source of help who never fails. And God is just as trustworthy to you today as he was to Jonah then. Because you, you are no more beyond saving than Jonah was. No one is so depraved that God can't forgive them. God's mercy reaches to the deepest depths of the ocean of human sin and rescues the perishing. So don't listen to Satan's lies. Don't believe that you are too far gone. That you are past saving. It is never too late to repent. 
It's never too late to turn to Christ. Because every human being is born in sin. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've wandered into our own ways. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And each and every one of us deserve His eternal wrath. But it's just as true that every one of us are equally free to respond in faith and receive God's mercy. Because God longs to rescue you. He longs to pull you out of the depths and put your feet on dry land. He wants to forgive you of your sins and give you a fresh start. And so to trust in Christ for salvation, really, it's to, it's to, it's to give up this idea that you can scrub away your own sin. It's an admission of guilt, yes. It's an admission of hopelessness, yes. But it's a trust in God's promise to save, to forgive, to give you a new identity in Christ, a new birth. And as new creations in Christ, we are then free to do the fourth thing that prayerful dependence does, and that's submit to God's will. Let's look at the end of Jonah's prayer in verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah ends his prayer really by, sum, by summarizing the entire message of the Bible. It's the gospel in five words. Salvation comes from the Lord. That's it. That's the point of the Bible. And the point of the book of Jonah is for you and I to understand that. To understand the grace of God. Yes, we need to be saved. Yes, it cannot come from ourselves. Yes, it must be received as a free gift of God's grace. Now the opposite of understanding and receiving God's grace is to forfeit God's grace. By clinging to worthless idols. Idolatry is something that humans have always struggled with. Certainly, Jonah's people, the Israelites, struggled with idolatry. And here, Jonah's effectively saying, there's no hunk of wood, there's no piece of stone, there's no statue of gold or silver that could have saved me. You know, perhaps fresh on his mind were those sailors on the boat during the storm that started off by praying to their various gods and sacrificing to all of these idols to no avail. And it wasn't until they forsook their idols and they cried out in faith and trust to the Lord God of Israel that the storm ceased and they were saved. Timothy Keller writes, An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart, If I have that then I'll feel like my life has meaning. If I have that, then I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant and secure if I have that. For Jonah, his idols were his own intense patriotism, right? I mean, he didn't want God to forgive Israel's enemies. It was his own reputation. He said, God, I know you. If I go and I preach destruction and, and wrath and judgment to those Ninevites, they're going to turn and you're going to relent and you're going to save them and I'm going to look like a fool. It was his own self-righteousness. Believing he could pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He forgot that he too deserved God's wrath and was a recipient of God's grace. What are your idols? What are you guilty of turning to for meaning, value, security, or significance? Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's your own self-appointed identity. 
Maybe it's your own religious efforts to do good and keep the law. King Solomon tried to find meaning and value and significance in money, power, pleasure, wisdom. The book of Ecclesiastes, he finally comes to the conclusion that all of that is vanity. He found no meaning, no value, no security, no significance in anything of this world. Before his conversion, the Apostle Paul sought those things from his identity as a Jew. His knowledge of the Bible as a Pharisee. His own self-righteous efforts. But Paul then learned that compared to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, all of those things were rubbish. Jonah proclaims that idols can provide you no mercy. The Hebrew word translated mercy, by the way, is the word hesed. And it refers to the faithful covenant love of God. It's God's love, grace, and mercy, which is based not on us, not on anything we deserve. It's based on God's character and His covenant promise. And so if you're chasing after idols, when what you really need is God's mercy, then what you're doing is you're forsaking His love and His promise. But to live a life of prayerful dependence is to reject the gods of this world. It's to totally trust in the Lord. It's to say that no idol, no human philosophy, nothing of this world will ever be there for you in the darkest times of your life. They will all fail you. But no matter how deep you have gone, no matter how far you have strayed, God is ready and willing to rescue you. And He will be there for you always. And so in verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. In verse 10, Jonah's giving a new beginning. He's given a fresh start. It's a gross start. It's a humbling start. I mean, think about it this way. Jonah was first flung into the ocean like garbage, and now he's vomited up onto the beach like, well, like, you know. It's gross. It's humbling. It's kind of like Jonah was born again. That's sort of a humbling, gross kind of beginning too, isn't it? It's kind of messy. Jonah is reborn onto that beach. And next week we're going to see what Jonah does with this new beginning. Let me give you a quick little preview. Spoiler alert. Jonah's repentance in chapter 2 was only a halfway repentance. He's still not happy about having to go to the Ninevites. Okay, so we're going to look at that next week. But I hope and I pray that our prayers, that our repentance will be more genuine, more transformative than Jonah's were. Because when we truly turn to God in prayerful dependence. We're going to worship Him with thanksgiving. We're going to make sacrifices to Him. Not animal sacrifices, but the sacrifices of our time and our attention and our priorities and our energy. And we too will proclaim to a world that is lost in darkness and sinking deep in sin the good news that salvation comes from the Lord. Maybe this morning you need to turn from some idols today. I invite you as we sing in a moment to come and lay whatever your idols are, lay them down at the feet of Jesus. And in prayerful dependence, cry out to God as the only source of salvation, as the only one who can rescue you and give you that meaning and that significance and that security that you long for. God wants to rescue you from your despair, from your distress, from your discouragement. Perhaps this morning you need to reject your own self-righteousness. You need to stop trying to earn God's favor and freely receive His free gift of grace.
Maybe God is calling you to come and unite with this church. Whatever God is laying on your heart, listen. Don't forfeit His grace by clinging to worthless idols. Let them go and turn to God. For salvation comes from the Lord. Let's stand and pray. Father, thank You for being a God of grace, unmerited favor, a God of hesed, of steadfast love and mercy that we could never earn. You freely bestow it upon us when we cry out to You with all of our heart, when we earnestly seek You because You are good and because we are not and we are lost and we are broken and we need You and You're the only one who can rescue. You're the only one who can save. You're the only one who can bind our broken hearts and make them new. God, help us to to forsake the worthless idol of self to stop thinking that it all depends upon me and I can just get my act together. Lord, may we not forfeit Your grace, but come to You in prayerful dependence. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.